Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is trusted advisor to high-profile musicians, celebrities, best-selling authors, and tech executives, Kelly Richards. First of all, did you know that we are now working a 32-hour day in the United States? Yeah, how is that possible? Well, Active Consulting did a big study about the average American and consumption of tech. And they discovered that the average American leads a 32-hour-a-day life, and this is all because of multitasking. The average American sleeps about 6 hours and 35 minutes, works only about 5 hours and 20 minutes, there's 7 hours for eating and housework and fitness and everything else, about 5 hours and 17 minutes are dedicated just consuming video, two hours and 48 minutes for audio, an hour and 53 minutes for gaming, an hour and 33 minutes for social messaging, and another hour and 39 minutes for everything else online. So that means 13 hours and nine minutes is dedicated to consumer technology and media activity every day. Now this is led by what's known as super users, which is 22% of the population. The average person spends about 9 hours and 21 minutes with media every day. But that said, super user spends almost 19 hours a day. Now again, this is because of multitasking. A super user consumes about 1.5 times more video, and 3.5 times more gaming, 2 times more music, 4 times more podcasts, and 2 times more messaging and social media. They spend a lot more money, too. While the average user spends about a dollar on music... Super users spend $21. Average user spends $4 in gaming. Super user spends $49. Average user spends $27 on video. Super user spends $76. Now, it's no surprise that super users are aged 18 to 34. They earn more money than the average person, have a higher education than the average person, and they're really highly connected. About 85% of them have unlimited data plans and most are early adopters for any kind of new tech that's coming out. But here's the good news if you're a musician, if you're an artist, if you're in a band. Super users attend four times more music shows and more live events than the average American consumer. So what that means is super users are your best customers. But it also begs the question, are you a super user as well? If you have any comments or questions, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Also, I'm pleased to announce that the fifth edition of my Mixing Engineers Handbook is now available. It's totally updated and includes new sections on mixing and immersive audio, self-mastering, new mixer interviews, and much more. Get your copy at a special discounted price at bobbyosinski.com forward slash handbook. That's bobbyosinski.com forward slash handbook. You can also find it on Amazon and Apple Books. And remember, you can learn all about the latest in music, audio, and production news when you sign up for my newsletter at bobbyosinski.com. There you'll also find out about openings for my latest online classes and special events. That's bobbyosinski.com. Now, as soon as COVID came around, everybody got super hypercritical about cleaning their microphones disinfecting their microphones and even though we're a little past that it's still a really good idea because nobody wants to get sick 
So a lot of companies have guidelines on this, and DPA has one of the best, actually. First of all, you have to understand the differences between cleaning and disinfecting. Cleaning just removes the dirt, while disinfecting means killing all the germs, and actually we want both. The whole idea is to clean first, then disinfect. Now, DPA suggests that the best way to clean a mic is to wipe down its surfaces with just ordinary soap and water, which destroys germs in the process. But take care not to get any of it on capsule because that could be very detrimental. And then let everything dry for about 72 hours. When it comes to disinfecting, they recommend that you wipe down the microphone with the cloth moistened in 70% isopropyl alcohol. Now again, don't get this on the mic's capsule. Where do you get this stuff? Well, if you go to the drugstore, you'll find 99% alcohol. And you might think that this is going to be better because it's stronger. But that's not the case because what happens, it evaporates too quickly to kill any germs. So you want a diluted solution. This actually works better. You get this by adding 20% water to it, 30% water, in some cases even 50%. It depends what you read, and they'll give you different percentages. But anything over 50%, you should be pretty good. Keep this in mind, though. The CDC says that 70% is the most effective in killing coronavirus germs. Again, we want to get rid of those things. When it comes to foam windscreens, that's probably one of the biggest things that we want to clean. How do you do it? Well, soap and water. Whole thing is leave them dry for 72 hours, and that's long enough for any remaining germs to die. Don't use that isopropyl alcohol, though, because it's going to damage the foam. How about cables? Yeah, they're a thing, too, because they get touched. In this case, we could have the isopropyl alcohol solution, and that would get rid of the germs, but it also breaks down the cable jacket and makes them brittle eventually, so you don't want to do that. DPA suggests that you use olive or coconut oil. <laughs> I don't know if that's a good idea, but you can go back to the original soap and water, and that will work just fine. So cleaning and disinfecting your microphones is probably something that they really need, and it's always a good practice to do so regularly anyway. It's not difficult, just takes a little time, and it will go a long way to keeping you and your clients healthy and happy. My guest this week is Kelly Richards, who's been a trusted advisor to legendary musicians, tech executives, leaders, and innovators. During her 25 years as a consultant, she's worked with artists like Paul McCartney, Todd Rundgren, Stuart Copeland, Prince, Michael Jackson, and even Apple computer founder Steve Jobs. While she was still in high school, Kelly approached Steve at a local cafe in Cupertino, and he accepted her request for him to be her mentor. That started a relationship that lasted over 30 years until his passing. Kelly put herself through college by working at GPI Publications, which is the home of guitar player, keyboard, and bass magazines, and then moved to Hollywood where she landed a job as an A&R exec at EMI Music. Kelly eventually headed back to Apple and was in charge of the company's early forays into music, as she was largely responsible for making Apple computers the go-to computer for creatives everywhere. Since Apple... She's worked with a range of disruptive, innovative startups and Fortune 100 companies as an advisor, consultant, and sometimes as an acting VP of business development and strategic partnerships. During the interview, we spoke about getting Steve Jobs as her mentor as a teenager, laying the foundation for Apple and the music and film communities, helping Todd Rundgren build Patronet, working as a young A&R exec, moving into the role of trusted advisor, the future of digital music, and much more. 
I spoke with Kelly via Zoom from her office in the heart of Silicon Valley. Let's go back to the beginning, and I think your start in the music business really goes back to Steve Jobs and, and me. Oh, no, him. it goes way before that. At the age of eight, I caught sight of George Martin behind the Beatles, and I said to myself, to my parents, I don't know what that man's doing, but that's what I want to do for a living. Because even at that age, I've always been sort of a visionary and very prescient, and that will come back to the Steve Jobs piece in a minute. But uh, I, I just knew that this guy was pulling magic out of them and and introducing things into the mix that they otherwise would never have come up with on their own. And that's what I wanted to do was work with brilliant people to show them possibilities that they could never see for themselves. I thought that was going to be in the music industry. And in some ways it was. But having gone through uh, a local recording academy my last two years of high school when I could drive, thinking I was taking that path, and having put myself through college working at guitar player, keyboard, and bass magazines, all of which happened to be in my hometown of Cupertino here in Silicon Valley. Uh, when I got to Hollywood, there was only one problem. I was the wrong gender, and I couldn't get arrested as a record producer. Yeah, funny how that works, huh? And that was a long time ago, and it's not much different now. Maybe a couple handfuls I can think of my sister female record producers. But in any event... I wound up zigging and zagging sideways. I was a very good networker. I met the right people when I was young. And I wound up working out of the Capitol Tower um, under Neil Portnow, doing A&R as a young A&R exec out of college. And that was the path that started me on the journey. Now, step back a bit in the timeline, a little bit of time shifting here. Again, I say I grew up in Cupertino. It's my hometown, still live here. Steve Jobs was like, and Apple were like the Wonka factory in my backyard as I was growing up. And when I was in high school at the age of 16, my um, I was in a group called Future Business Leaders of America. And they tasked us with approaching someone that we wanted to have as a business mentor locally, who we really admired. Now, my mom was a college professor at the local college, and we were always surrounded by hippie types and creatives many of whom frequented the, the handful of vegan restaurants there were at that time, one of which was Steve Jobs. I knew who he was. I knew what he looked like. I saw him all the time at the same hangouts that we went to. And so he was my guy. He was going to be my mentor for FBLA. And one thing about me as a teenager, and I've, I've never lost this, is my ability to sort of have the moxie to go up to people and introduce myself. So I did. I went up to Steve and I said, this is me. This is what I'm all about. I, I love Apple. I love you. And um, I've got this challenge from my future business leaders of America group. Would you be my would you be my, my mentor? And he said, well, I'll, I'll think about it. And we met a couple more times, talked about it. And he said, you know what? I really like you. I'll, I'll say yes to that. And and that began, the, that was the dawn of a lot of life-changing experiences for me with Steve, who I remained in touch with until his death, and, and certainly in, in other parts of my, my world. When I left, the transition from EMI to Apple was that I was miserable living in Los Angeles. I, I really, the culture didn't really jive with me. It still doesn't for the most part, although I have to be there for business a lot. I choose to live in, in NorCal, a uh, very different culture between the two worlds. And I got a tap on the shoulder from colleagues that had gone to Apple saying, look, we want to start a focus on music. We think you could be instrumental in that, pun intended. And, uh, and so I came back to, to go to Apple. Uh, at that time, Steve had been banished. He was not there, but we remained in contact. 
And uh, and I stayed there until he came back to write the company. It was one quarter away from dying. And I and I birthed the whole original focus of music at Apple, music and film, music and entertainment. And I did that almost single-handedly. I had a woman that did product placement for films and TV shows. I had a colleague that managed developer relations. But otherwise, it was me dealing with the industry, the relationships with the artists, the producers, the filmmakers, studios, everybody. And I did that for almost 12 years. And then when Steve came back, he said, look, we're not going to focus on music and entertainment for a while. I got to get this company back on its feet. So I went a mile down the road and started my consulting practice, but continued to advise Steve informally when it came time to launch iTunes, which was about five years later. Wow. So you were there for 12 years and you were starting the music initiative, but it wasn't really public at the time then, it, right? No, it was pro-facing as opposed to consumer-facing. I did have a roadmap for the consumer solution, but I couldn't get arrested in, in the management adopting it until Steve came back. And as far as the pros, who, who when you say pros, what does that mean? So making sure every musician used a Macintosh and hopefully uh, Pro Tools with it to liberate themselves from expensive recording studios and take control of music creation on their own terms. That's my claim to fame, as well as helping filmmakers use the Macintosh, every filmmaker, from the beginning of their concept all the way to promotion, distribution, marketing on the back end. Every single person on the team using a Macintosh. Those were my things to make sure the industry was using the Macintosh. The creators were. And then that would influence, um, of course, individuals to pick up and use the Mac as well. Now, you certainly did a great job of that because it's still true today. I think everybody, well... If I had to make a guess, I would say it's in the 90% area. Oh, yeah, definitely. I feel very proud of having laid the, pay, the, the foundation that would become Apple Music in later days. And um, in that journey, of course, I, I built incredible relationships, which allowed me when I went a mile down the road to work for as a consultant 25 years ago, allowed me the ability to have all the relationships I needed to start networking and and start having clients immediately. It also did one other thing, which is that, during the mid-90s, there were only a handful of really progressive music tech artists. I could rattle off a bunch of names, and I will. Uh, Peter Gabriel, David Bowie, Todd Rundgren, Herbie Hancock, uh, uh, Laurie Anderson, and I'm leaving a few more out. I, of course, marketed and promoted the heck out of those guys in, in, at Apple in different campaigns that we did. But as importantly, I built relationships with each of them. Uh, I think I left out Thomas Dolby in there as well. Uh, so Todd and I, Todd Rundgren and I, while I was still at Apple, I moonlighted and helped Todd build what became the first artist direct-to-fan solution in the mid-90s, which he dubbed Patronet. And this is where artists could be underwritten. Artists that had established uh, fan following could be underwritten by their own fans as opposed to necessarily being tethered to a major label to survive. Uh, this was huge and seismic, and it was probably 13 years prior to the launch of, guess what? Patreon. Yeah. Note the difference, similar to the name, $4 billion plus company at a couple, as of a couple of years ago. Todd and I were way too early with that vision, but we did have it right alongside Prince with his MPG Music Club and Bowie with Bowie Net. And we all conversed about all of that, all of us, all the time. I want to take a step back for a second because I want your opinion on, on something. Because yes, you did a great job with creators being Apple-centric. And certainly the case today. But there was a time where I think Apple lost its way when it comes to video and Final Cut. 
where there was quite a number of people that diverged from Final Cut over into Premiere or other solutions. And there's lots of Indeed, I recall. Now they're having a hard time getting those people back. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Why did that happen? And just from the outside looking at that. Yeah, my observation is pretty straightforward. Uh, management at Apple didn't make it a priority. And therefore, for all the work, those of us that were just entrenched in that sector for years did to build and foster the relationships to incent and encourage those creators to make sure that Mac was the only platform they'd even think about. When there was no longer that focus or those people involved, that was it. Apple was set adrift. That's my that's my stance on it. Too bad. It is too bad. Very much too bad. And I and I I still have award-winning brochures that I produced about all that, you know, all, to those audiences. I'm very proud of what we did. You know, people often say, well, gee, yeah, so you did all that, but you don't have the stock to prove it. Or, you know, and it's true, Apple was not generous with stock when I was there. But, uh, but you know, who's going to say that you were the one that did all that? And I, I always say the people that needed to know, know, yeah. and still do. Some of them are still there. When you left to start your own consulting companies, you did that because you had a long list of contacts for one Indeed. thing. But what did I had they built up a really massive network? What did they want from you? Well, so then and now, combination of strategy, insights, go to market uh, adoption techniques, uh, marketing ideas, uh, strategic partners, people they otherwise couldn't reach, and and just being a really sound advisor from having lived in the trenches of both the music, entertainment, and tech world. And, the, and driving the convergence of the two early on. So I was one of those sort of early pioneers that that did have the vision and the wherewithal to, to be in the middle of any emerging technology that would deliver new distribution opportunities and new revenue streams for content creators. I was always right there and still, and still have tried to be to this day for the most part, although it's got a lot more complex. How long were you at EMI? Two and a half years. And I spent a lot of those years, I mean, I was young both working with the artists on the roster as well as going out at night clubbing to find new artists right with my with my a and r brethren from the other labels and i would just die a thousand deaths when geffen would get all the metal guys you know with tom zutout and those people i wanted those guys and and i and i really wanted to sign a band called bourgeois tag which uh todd later produced the second of the two albums they did before they broke up but chris blackwell beat me to it at island so I didn't wind up signing anyone in that time frame, but I sure as heck enjoyed working with the artists that were on the roster. That was the old days when that's what you did. You went out and, and you beat the bushes, oh, so to speak. It, and I had the energy to do it in my early 20s. Yeah, so I don't yeah. think I would now. Funny how that works. But <laughs> yeah. that's all changed. Oh, yeah. And because of technology, in fact. I don't know if it's better or worse. What's your view on it? I, I You know, listen, I'm, I've always been a high-touch person, and I, and I miss that. And I think it was important from an AR standpoint to have that editorial filter, and we really had the ears, and to get out there and meet the artists and the bands, and and really build and foster relationships and helping to groom them. I think a lot of that so-called artist relations part of AR is gone, and I and I think the editorial filters are gone with the internet. I, I think it's not the same. It's just it's a crowd. It's way too crowded. There's too many content creators, think you know, creating music, for example, out of their bedrooms and closets. And then posting them on selves on TikTok, and then all of a sudden they get a billion streams or whatever. You know, I, I I think there's too much noise and not enough editorial filtering. Is my is my comment about that? 
Yeah, I think most people would agree with you, except for the artists. That are well, but but the other thing is, we don't see artists with careers. We see a lot more one-hit wonders. We see a lot more artists who have songwriters writing hits for them, as opposed to writing their own music and having that whole publishing arm of mailbox money for the rest of their lives. So I know I sound like a luddite, like an old person, but there are some good things that got lost in the transition. And I'm the biggest tech proponent you'll find, but still, it's not always the right solution. One of the things that bugs me about the whole thing is, again, starting my career as a musician and working in clubs, you know, every night of the week, it's that that was an important learning curve that you went through. You learned how to work an audience. You, you learned how to have stage presence. And that's not the case anymore, where there's fewer places to play, first of all. And second of all, you don't need to if you can get a lot of exposure online. So that whole paradigm has shifted. I hate, and hate to use that term, but it's true. It is true. It is true. And of course, all the relationship building, the networking with the industry and the artists, the artists and their fans, artist to artist, a lot of that has gotten lost. One other thing from the past, and then we'll jump up to the, okay. the present. <laughs> yeah. So you worked at GPI, who that, yeah. uh, was the publisher for... Yes, you may use that term, yes. Yes. The acronym. Guitar Player Magazine, Keyboard Magazine. Right. And bass. Yes, right. So during that period, you were still going to school, right? You were putting... I was. I put myself through college working there. Yeah. You did a lot of different jobs there, too, right? Yeah, I mean, I started off in the accounting department, chasing collect, you know, collections, doing that. I mean, which was a zero. But I got to meet all the editors, of course, of the magazines and got to meet some of the artists. And along the way, while I was working there, I started what became a 20-year career as a talent producer of award shows. No, 37-year career doing that. 20 years at the BAMIs, which was the Bay Area Music Awards. I remember. And then 17 years with Polestar for their annual Polestar Award show. Uh, the same co-producer I had on the Bambi, Steve McFadden, pulled me in to be his co-producer on the Polestar Awards. So that was a whole other piece of my career that, uh, that I built at the same time. And many of those artists, of course, had been featured, cover of, G of you know different GPI publications or would be. So there was a lot of cross-pollination of these relationships with artists that I was building in all these quadrants before EMI and before Apple. Yeah, yeah. Now, of course, that's another thing that's changed big time, where, gee, how many magazines are there now? There's not that many, and most yes. of them don't have a big circulation. So that whole idea of what you needed to serve your readers is different. Because and the editorial curation. Editorial curation, completely different. So, yeah, we're, we're talking back to a time that's evolved, if nothing else. And this is why I revere, still to this day, editors from Rolling Stone that were their, their entire careers, you know, like um, David Frick yeah. and um, Ben Fong Torres, people like that. Yeah. You know, we lived and died reading those magazines and followed everything they wrote. And now, of course, you know, especially in David's case, he's now a DJ on Sirius XM or whatever. So they found ways to reinvent themselves, but... They will always be those perennial gods of music journalism. Are most of your clients corporate these days? No. Most of them are individuals or entrepreneurs. I have segued a bit in my, in my uh, careers as a self-employed entrepreneur. I started off almost exclusively as a consultant to companies, either funded startups all the way to Fortune 100 companies, as I described earlier doing strategy, strategic partnerships, um, advisory, all of that. 
Along the way, I got a coaching certification in parallel to start a second career that I, and I've been running them in parallel for a lot of years as what I call a trusted advisor to people who've already had a lot of success, either as an artist or a media exec or tech innovator or entrepreneur and, or, or want to. And, um, you know, people that have means to be able to invest in their own growth, not just from a coaching standpoint, me, but also helping them strategically if they're running companies, working as an advisor to them and their team, uh, if they're individuals, helping them craft and navigate where they're headed next, and then coming up with ideas they would never have thought of and possibilities they would never have occurred, hearkening back to the George Martin stuff, and then helping them with access into my network, which runs very broad and deep, to accelerate where they say they want to go. I call that role being a trusted advisor. That's how I define trusted advisor and myself in that role. I don't call myself a coach because it's well beyond coaching and I don't choose to be a commodity. So I have moved more and more as the years have evolved, Bobby, into that trusted advisor role. I still do some consulting, but it's more and more these one-on-one engagements where I work with someone for a year to several years in that role. Because a lot of people want to get really successful, starting when I was working with Prince and Michael Jackson in this capacity back in the day. They don't have a lot of people around them, maybe even not even a couple by a couple fingers that they can truly trust to talk to holistically about their whole life, their life and their work and how to make sure they're really living their legacy. Uh, Some can't even trust their spouses. (laughs) Right. So this is the role that I'm really enamored of because it's nothing more rewarding than helping people like that who have been so inspirational transform the quality of their lives and their impact. Is there one thing that you find that most of your clients need, whether they know it or not? You know, even the most successful people that I've worked with struggle with things like you wouldn't you wouldn't believe, like self-confidence and self-worth. And even trusting themselves or giving themselves permission for how they spend their time every day or choosing to work on something that, what would people think? And I always have to say, who cares what other people think? This is your life. If this is what you're being called to do, I could... I'm not going to name drop everything, but I will say Prince and I talked about him wanting to write a children's book and he never did. But we talked about how he just couldn't see himself even making the time or giving himself permission to do it. But it was something that was calling for him to do and nobody around him would buy into that. Does that happen a lot where you find clients really want to do something, but they feel constricted because constrained? Yeah. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. And I would think it's because of their persona. Maybe it's because of what people expect from them. Exactly right. And and I'm always the one giving them permission to break out of their silos and saying, look, if this is what's calling you to do, let's find a way to do it and make it happen. Get the right people around you, get the right resources. And and, and sometimes I, I tell them, and it's true, I'm kind of holding the high watch for and holding up a mirror for what I'm hearing them say and, and what I'm seeing that they're not talking about. And then helping them get there, because oftentimes they don't believe they can. How do you get to that point? It, it really starts with trust. What, what do you mean? You want, dial back, like, how do I wind up working with certain individuals? No, when you first start to work with them, obviously, the, you have to build that trust up. And you have to know about what those inner yearnings are before you can actually help them. Mm-hmm. How long does that take? You know, it's a journey of discovery. What I really find, Bobby, in, in all the years I've been doing it now, and it does vary, of course, by individual. But often, no matter what they think they want to do and accomplish, the first three to six months or even nine months 
is sometimes unwinding all the belief systems and the fear and the, and the mental games that are getting in their way until they really have a new lease on life in terms of how they look at themselves and their opportunities and, and how they operate in the world and even change some of their behaviors and their mindsets. All of that has to precede the actual doing of what they say they want to do. Otherwise, they're going to sabotage themselves. It seems to me that I think a lot of, and let's just stay in the music business for a while and, and some of your music clients, I would think that their fans would be amazed that they would need this type of advice. The fans always look at, at the artist as someone all-knowing and someone... Yeah, yeah, but you know, this is all pretty personal stuff. Oh, yeah, obviously, yeah. And unless they choose to talk about what they're doing and what's happening that's transforming where they're how they're operating in the world and where they're headed, how would anybody ever know? Certainly isn't going to come from me. When you look back, what's the biggest mistake that you made and what did you learn from it? You know, I really wish I had stayed at Apple. I wish it could have made sense for me to do so. Because watching Apple Music grow up without me as its parent has at times been enormously painful for me. When I see mistakes that get made and things I would have done differently, not benefiting from the uplift financially of the stock. Mm. And, and, and it was my passion, you know, so I, I really wish there had been a way for me to hang around. But had I chosen to stay at Apple, even with Steve back, and I could have found something somewhere in the company, it didn't reconcile with me when so much was starting to take off with music tech. My first client when I left Apple was Napster. I, I, I needed to be birthing the next big thing, which was this whole digital music revolution. So while I missed the, the resurgence that came with Apple, with, with iTunes and Apple Music coming back, I did play a, a modest role in some of that. But, you know, I do, I do regret not having been able to stay, stay the course. Now, given your background in streaming music and just the whole shift from the way the music business did business, their business, to the way it's done now, when you look at it as an observer from afar... Um, maybe not from afar because you may be in, into it's a mile it. down the road. <laughs> yeah, yeah. At least Apple is. But yeah. yeah, but but you know what I mean. When you look at it as an observer, where do you see it going? You know, it's funny. I have to go back to answer that question. When at the dawn of the birth of iTunes in April of two thousand three, I said to the guys, "You know what? You're making a huge mistake. It shouldn't be downloaded. It needs to be streaming. People need to have access to the, all the music they want on demand for a flat fee." And it took several years before they caught up with that. So that was frustrating. But where I see it going, well, I had a partnership with a guy named Garrett Lanhard for several years. We ran a, a consulting business together side by side. And Garrett wrote a book called The Future of Music. And he, he talked about, and at the same time, I published my first book, The Art of Digital Music. But anyway, um, he talked about music being like water and being tied to the utilities and you know, just get ads added to the Comcast bill or the PG&E bill or whatever, and just let it be invisible to the user and let them have access to all the music in the world as if they were just turning on a faucet. I've always believed that. I still do. And I think that people are getting really weary uh, post-pandemic of paying for all the different streaming music services and the prices keep going up when many of them are redundant with the same music. And I, and I, and I think that... Um, the same thing's going to happen as a little bit, a little detour on the um, TV side with streaming video. People are, you know, they cut the cord of the bundled cable programs, but now they're paying more 
for the multitude of individual streaming channels. And there's going to have to be a comeuppance there where the pendulum swings the other way. And wouldn't be surprised if the cable companies started bundling some of those again to bring some of those people back. Yeah. But but yeah, these trends, these cycles swing, and then it, we see it coming back. Music has changed so much from just what it was, very linear, singles, then downloads, or, or albums, CDs, and then singles in this in the form of downloads, and then streaming all you can all you can eat listen to. I think now it's becoming more pervasive as use in in healing and wellness environments, uh, certainly in games and Web3 in the metaverse. We see NFTs. We see um, uh, just music being a bedrock for so many things, certainly tied to films. It's just more and more ways music can find its audience beyond just the traditional linear one to many where these Byzantine you know, handful of labels controlled everything, and now it's much more egalitarian. What's your view of TikTok? I think it's ephemeral. TikTok in regards to music? Yeah. yeah. I think it's like flavor of the month. Like, I don't know, MySpace? It came and it went. I mean, not to say it didn't do a lot of, to impact uh, millions and millions of good things for artists and fans. But TikTok, I don't get it. And I know I'm not in the age range, but I also think it's a fad. Yeah, and there may be some legislation that actually stops it in its tracks as well. I think we're it's already happening, at least yeah. in terms of not allowing it in Congress and the U.S. government. Don't know how long it'll take to translate to individual users, and I don't know if it becomes uh, a BitTorrent underground thing if there's an attempt to legislate it out of existence. I mean, I know it's kind of a oh, the labels. Oh my God, we've got to control TikTok. We've got to have something for TikTok. Everybody is like fiercely focused on it, but I, I myself. Eh, it's kind of like Clubhouse yeah. a couple of years ago. <laughs> right. eh, just wait it out. It'll it'll be gone like a revolving door. That's how I see it, honestly. Yeah, I think I do too, to be honest with you. And again, you and I are not in the demographic. No, not even close. We've been around long enough to see fads and cycles and things come and go. Yeah, definitely. All right, last question, Kelly. What's the best piece of advice that you've received along the way? Maybe you've kind of figured it out yourself. It's funny. People ask me that relative to my years with Steve as a mentor all the time. And he gave me a lot of advice, life and business. And I, I just, he's with me every day on this shoulder, Prince on the other shoulder from my years with both those guys. I, I swear, opportunities, people come my way by virtue of those two and the advice. Sounds a little hokey, but it's true. I think one of the best things Steve ever instilled in me, I, I'll give you two from him. One was to have an impeccable BS meter. <laughs> And I have learned to fine tune that to a T over the over the decades. So that's number one. And um, the corollaries for that, of course, don't don't put up with any bozos was one of his favorite sayings. The other one would be to trust your intuition. And if you ever watched Steve's commencement speech at Stanford a few years before he passed, that's the most prescient video of his advice and counsel that exists in one 16 to 18 minute video. And he talked about intuition there too. But Trusting my intuition has literally saved my life as a survivor of 9-11 for not getting on one of the planes that crashed, for example. Wow. So um, I, I don't think you can diminish the power of intuition. And I am always encouraging the people I work with to pay close attention to that and to honor it. You can find out more about Kelly at kellyrichards.com. That's Kelly, K-E-L-L-I, Richards. R-I-C-H-A-R-D-S. 
kellyrichardsalloneword.com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Remember that you can learn all about the latest in music, audio, and production news when you sign up for my newsletter at bobbyosinski.com. There you'll also find out about openings for my latest online classes and special events. That's bobbyosinski.com. To listen to the episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com, or you can find it on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyoinnercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-in form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time.